listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Pastor Andy Squires. Is everyone, everyone doing well? Raise your hand if you're doing well. It's okay if you're not, but you know, it's, I'm telling you, man, <clears throat> worship was good today. I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. Thank you, Lord, for good music and for a loud singing church. Well, today is Palm Sunday, if you didn't know. It's the beginning of Holy Week. In the, in the gospel account, we see Jesus. He's turning his face toward Jerusalem to enter into his passion and to give his body and spirit up to wash away the sins of the world and to ransom the world and while inaugurating the kingdom of God. So, so today I want to talk to you about tax collectors and prostitutes and temple merchants. Somebody's laughing at that. Okay, so hopefully you've read your Bible before today. And you know that the story of Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus begins his journey from Jerusalem. He starts out in Jericho. All right. Jericho is geographically speaking the lowest city on the planet. How many of you knew that? That Jericho is geographically the lowest point. All right. So if you go from Jericho to Jerusalem the way Jesus did, you're actually ascending. You're going up a hill. But what's interesting about that, that physical ascension from the lowest point up to Jerusalem is, metaphorically speaking, Jesus is going from the lowest points geographically to the lowest points, the lowest point which was his eventual death and resurrection or the death was the lowest point. Anyways, death by crucifixion is, is not a pleasant thing. So from lowest point to lowest point, he came as the king of peace on a lowly donkey rather than on a war horse as a conquering king. And the scripture says that a great multitude began crying out as he came into the city they were singing, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 21 says this, that Jesus went into the temple. So he's, he's riding in on this peace donkey. As soon as he gets into the city, according to Matthew 21, he goes to the temple of God and he drives out. All of those who bought and sold in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the doves. So here's the thing. You can see this over and over in scripture while Jesus being the king of peace, being the king of Shalom, he was constantly being confrontive. Jesus continually will confront the kingdom that we live in, if it is opposed to his kingdom. So it is fair to say that Jesus comes as a man of peace, but he's not a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker. And there's a difference. 
He's not interested in letting us keep the status quo if the status quo is opposed to the kingdom that he is trying to bring. So Jesus will confront us. He confronts the way things are. Because the way things are are not necessarily the way things should be. And Jesus will confront the realities in our lives that need overturning. And even though he came in on a peace donkey, we can't put it past Jesus not to leave us alone in our wrong thinking and our wrong behaving. So he quotes this passage from Isaiah to the people that are selling and buying sacrifices to give to God in the temple. He says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. All right. So there's a lot of implications happening of Jesus. First thing he does goes to the temple and he overturns these tables. But for us, there's another lesson there. And it's this. If the church is known more for its wealth and its commodities than it is for its relating to God, something may need changing. That's true in the corporate church, but it's also true in our own lives. But in this particular passage, something beautiful occurs. After Jesus cleanses the temple, it says that the blind and the lame and the deaf came to him and he healed them. So there's this direct connection between things being set right by Jesus and health and wholeness following. Sometimes you're wondering why you lack health. And I don't mean physical health, although I, that is a possibility. But, but things aren't healthy in your life. It may be that there's a disconnect between the order or disorder that is happening in your life and the healing that you're enjoying. So when, we, when things are set in their right place, in their God-ordained order, Health, all kinds of health, is an outcome. It can be an outcome. So I want to talk for a second about righteousness. You know this word. You read it in the Bible all the time. It's a little bit of a scary word, righteousness. I've very rarely been interested in hearing about righteousness in my life. Because it's, it's a little bit of a daunting word. Because when you hear about righteousness, you hear, you think about people that are super spiritual, very holy. Uh, it might seem like an unattainable thing to you. But here is what righteousness is. Righteousness is just, or it is only things being in their right place. Righteousness is a good thing. Righteousness is actually what we all long for. It should be our prayer that God would come and overturn the tables in our lives and set things right. Don't be afraid of righteousness that comes from God. It is a gift to us. Amen. Okay. But of course, when the religious people, they're seeing all these tables turning and they're seeing miraculous healing take place. And then they start hearing children singing, rejoicing. In Jesus, they become what? They become indignant. They get mad. When God begins to set things in order, some people don't like it. 
When God begins to say out loud the way things should be, when he begins to set in order his kingdom, there is not generally all good feelings around that type of thing. There is more often than not a negative reaction to when Jesus comes and speaks the truth and starts inaugurating the kingdom into the into reality There is sometimes a great and negative reaction to that thing. It's important for you to know that because sometimes you attempt to push into the kingdom of God and you don't like the reaction that comes back your way. And so you back off of the things of the kingdom of God. So. So these folks, they're getting mad at Jesus bringing the kingdom because, you know, kids rejoicing in the blind seeing is something to be mad about. Right. It's, it's, it's a little bit curious, but that's that's the way the story goes. But son of David, the thing that these kids were calling Jesus, the thing that the people were calling out was a reserved title. OK, that was a title that was reserved for the true Messiah who would come and he would overthrow Rome, not some blasphemer who was friendly with tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus, you've heard us talk about this before. He was a very confusing person. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah, but he was always acting the exact opposite way they imagined Messiah to be, right? We know this, right? So these days between Palm Sunday and Jesus's crucifixion are packed with one confrontation after another. His entry into Jerusalem is the beginning of his end. He begins talking and acting in such a way that the religious and political powers are stirred into a vicious frenzy. Jesus begins telling the truth in such a way that the Pharisees and elders only recourse is to begin plotting his death. You know, sometimes in this world, there will be people that will speak truth to power and violence is the thing that comes after them. Sometimes health and wholeness follows right order. Coming into a situation. But sometimes the conflict of truth meeting power is so great that the thing that happens afterwards is violence of one degree or another. So in the week leading up to his death, Jesus is incredibly poignant and he's pointed. He becomes extremely clear, especially in his dealings with religious people. In Matthew 21, following the cleansing of the temple, we find Jesus teaching in the temple. So he goes from cleansing the temple to having a healing service. And then he starts teaching in the temple. And while he's teaching these Pharisees and elders, they come to him again. And they're trying to stump him. We find Jesus teaching in the temple and the, the, they come to him and they interrupt his teaching and confront him. And they want to know by what authority he comes. And it's, it's very confusing what happens. Jesus just begins bombarding them with parables. He's not really interested in them understanding what he has to say at this point. He's been working for quite a while trying to reach these people, trying to convince them. But he realizes that they are not interested in really hearing what he's saying. 
But first he tells them in Matthew 21, 31 through 32, he says, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, of things coming into God's order. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. It is possible to witness God moving and to not have your mind change. So Pharisee literally means separate or to separate or separatist. All right. These were people who took their relationship with God very seriously. They were sincere in their zeal. It is very possible to be sincere in your belief and be wrong. Your perspective may be all that you have, but when Jesus comes to you to talk to you, he may want to tell you that the way you have been thinking, as sincere as you have been, has been wrong. And Jesus is not one to hold back using offensive language with us. Jesus telling the Pharisees that tax collectors and prostitutes were closer to the kingdom of God than they were was not because Jesus had some romantic view about tax collectors and prostitutes. Sometimes I read through the scriptures and I see Jesus interacting with all of these folks that were kind of, well, they were the downtrodden. They were the, they were the dregs of society. And I, I, sometimes I get the idea that Jesus was, he was just good with everything. And, and, If you take an honest look at the scripture, the only conclusion that you can really come away with was Jesus didn't have a romantic view of tax collectors. He didn't have a romantic view of those that were selling their bodies for money. Sometimes we can read Jesus's affinity to party with the down and out crowd as he wasn't really aware of the severity of the destruction that those people were bringing to themselves and their community. So here's the thing. Tax collectors were unfaithful people. Jesus knew this, all right? They took money from their fellow Jews as agents of Rome, and they became rich off of that. Their wealth was ill-gotten gain. They used their position of power to take advantage of people. They lied and they stole as a lifestyle. They would exact more money than people could afford. Rome did not care that they did this as long as Rome got its share. Tax collectors could take whatever they wanted. The thing about tax collectors is that they had actual power. They had Roman soldiers at their their disposal to enforce. They could harm people who wouldn't pay what the tax collector demanded. They They could throw people in prison. They could separate parents from children. They could turn children into orphans. Tax collectors weren't men with minor character flaws. They were men who at, who at, some point decided to dance with the devil and enjoyed all the benefits that come with selling your soul for money and power. 
Tax collectors were unfaithful people. They were unfaithful to righteousness. Prostitutes were also unfaithful people. They were women who earned a living by selling their bodies. Unlike the tax collector, though, the prostitute wasn't necessarily a person with power. Nevertheless, for the sake of earning a living, there were those in Jesus' time who became objects of other people's lust in exchange for money. Selling your body for money is a problem for many reasons. There are negative emotional, physical, and spiritual implications to joining yourself sexually to someone who is not your husband or your wife. There is a clear sexual ethic found in scriptures. There is a clear and righteous version of healthy human sexuality in the scriptures. To be a prostitute was to be unfaithful to God's vision for healthy human sexuality. Temple merchants were unfaithful people. The thing about temple merchants is that they were religious. So people didn't necessarily think of them as being unfaithful. You know, if you want to hide your unfaithfulness, the easiest place to do it is in the church. It's really easy to hide your unfaithfulness in the guise of some outward spirituality. Jesus is coming after his people. And my view is that the place he's starting with is the church. Because some of us has, have been in the spiritual world so long that we can no longer see the forest for the trees. And we might be surprised when Jesus comes to us and starts talking to us about the way things actually are in our lives. It's really easy to be on the worship team or to be a preacher or to be, you know, working anywhere in this, in this church or even just to be a participating member of a congregation. It is easy to miss the things in your life that Jesus ultimately wants to confront. And that's where these temple merchants found themselves. They were actually working under the delusion that they were working for God. They actually thought they were doing the Lord's work and they were making a hefty profit at it. You know what? If you were a Jew at this time and you were making a lot of money, guess what you were thinking? That you were under the favor of God. Sometimes people find themselves with a whole lot of money and they mistakenly might come to the conclusion that they're experiencing the favor of God. Now, I'm not saying that all wealth is bad or you shouldn't have a lot of money, but I'm just saying it's not an accurate measuring stick as to where you stand with Jesus. You may need to ask him where you stand. I don't know. So the thing about temple merchants is that they were religious. So people didn't necessarily think that they were unfaithful. Tax collectors, yes, that's obvious. Prostitutes, that's easy. But temple merchants were doing God's work and they were helping people fulfill the sacrificial requirements of the law. They were providing a service. How were they unfaithful? Well, it's simple. They commercialized and they commodified church. They made money 
the pathway to God. They capitalized on the idea that folks could earn their way into God's good graces or pay their way into God's good, God's good graces. They were unfaithful to the truth by capitalizing on the lie that relating to God would be a thing that could be bought. So unfaithfulness seems to be our way, doesn't it? At some point in our lives, we trade righteousness for unrighteousness. This is true of us all. We say to ourselves, the kingdom of God is something that is unrealistic. It is idealistic. So I have to trade over here in the kingdom of the world. So I must trade over here in the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God, the way it works is very inconvenient. And the things that it is calling me to are sometimes hard to do, sometimes painful, sometimes costs me more than I'm willing to pay. So what my default setting is, I just go trading in the ways of the kingdom of the world. So the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness really plays this one out, okay? Here's the thing. The devil is always trying to get us to make deals with him. He is always telling us that the most important thing for you and I is that we have something to eat. The devil wants us to be preoccupied with how to get bread. The reason why tax collectors and prostitutes and temple merchants were unfaithful unto or unfaithful to righteousness is because they fell for the lie that Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness with, which is the most important thing for you is that you have something to eat. He said this to Jesus in the wilderness, take matters into your own hands and turn these stones into bread. What you believe or when you believe that the most important thing is that you have that you have something to eat, you will literally trade your inheritance for a bowl of stew. When you believe that the most important thing is that you have something to eat. You will always take matters into your own hands and you will steal from the poor. You will sell your body and you will deal in lies. The problem with Jesus is he doesn't really understand how much I need food to eat. The problem with Jesus is he doesn't really understand how much I need bread to live by. The problem with Jesus, he doesn't really accurately feel how hungry I am, that I need money and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff that the world is offering me. Jesus doesn't understand how much I need that stuff. He doesn't really realize how badly I need bread to live, money to spend, sex to feel, affection for comfort, so on and so forth. Lord, I need bread. This has always been my call, my cry in my life. Lord, I need bread. And Jesus is saying this back to me over and over. You cannot live on bread alone. 
You can't do it. Jesus is saying, here's how you live. You are living. You will live. You shall live out of the words that are coming out of my mouth. The words that come out of his mouth, here's what they do. They make us faithful. The words that come out of Jesus's mouth make us faithful. They make us righteous. They set things in their right place. We don't have to be afraid of Jesus confronting us. It may shock us a little to have our tables overturned. It may injure our pride to have our deeds exposed, but God is inaugurating his kingdom within us. I I learned this a few years ago. Write this down if you're taking notes. God never negotiates with Pharisees or liars. God never negotiates with Pharisees or liars. So here's, this is the course of my life. This is the way my faith journey has looked. I'm repenting of being both of those things. That's like the continual prayer of my life. I'm repenting of living in my own self-righteousness. I am repenting of tyrannizing myself with my own perspective. I am repenting of lying to myself and others because I do not want my own way in my life. I want God's kingdom to root down deep into the depth of my being. And I want to bear good fruit. I want to bear righteousness. I want to bear peace. And I want to bear joy in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is confronting us with and leading us to. The opportunity to live faithful lives that are rooted in his righteousness. Isn't that good news? This is what God is doing, church. This is where we are. This is where we are headed. We're going from unfaithfulness to faithfulness, unrighteousness to righteousness. And we're doing this by feasting on the words that are coming out of his mouth. When we shout Hosanna, which, which means save now, that was, that's the big Palm Sunday proclamation. Hosanna, Lord Jesus, save now. And God responds by sending his word and his spirit into us in order to set us free from the tyranny of self. <clears throat> He's making unfaithful people faithful. That's what he is doing right now. He is making unrighteous people righteous. He is setting things in order. He he is setting things that are out of order into kingdom order. He is speaking truth to the unfaithfulness in our hearts. And he is drawing out of us the righteousness that he hardwired into our very DNA. Jesus says this in Luke 17. He says that the kingdom of God is not over there and it's not over there, but it's within you. He wasn't being poetic. He was being clear. The very essence of what God is doing and what God is like is currently living within us right now. 
So don't trade that reality for the idea that God is somewhere else far away and that you need to go find him. You don't have to act like an orphan. You don't have to act like a tax collector or a prostitute or a temple merchant. You are not going to turn stones into bread because you are living on the words that God has spoken to you. And it's hard. Sometimes we will go hungry. That's the truth of it. Sometimes you're going to follow God into a place and you actually will feel hungry. And that's okay. It really is okay. Stuart Clark and I, we were talking earlier about how we kind of live in a culture now that is so saturated with the pursuit of pleasure that we have actually forgotten the joys of being hungry. The joy of like experiencing wants for a little bit. The joy of experiencing silence or the, the joy of not having every prayer answered right away. The joy of you having to go a distance with God before you see the outcome that you want. The joy of traveling with Jesus through difficulties rather than just the bliss that you think you want all the time. But really, you don't want that. There's something that you find out about Jesus when you walk through hard times that you cannot find in good times. So you don't have to act like an orphan. You don't have to act like a tax collector or a prostitute or a temple merchant. Sometimes we will go hungry. Sometimes we will have to make amends. Sometimes the truth is told and there are repercussions. But living in the kingdom of God by, by kingdom ways is truly the good life. You know, like... Some of these tax collectors had to go backwards. They had to go make amends for all of the money that they stole. You know, the thing about the tax collectors is it wasn't any big revelation about the sins that they were committing or the, the you know, the injustice that they were committing. Everybody knew that. So their recourse was to go back and, and pay back the money they stole. And then, you know, the scriptures indicate that some of them were giving back more money than they stole. They were making amends. But sometimes for some of us, the path isn't that everybody already knows we're a criminal. Sometimes the path is that we actually have to outwardly confess the injustices that we've committed. We have to open our mouth and say the thing that we've done. And for many of us, including myself, that is the scariest part of walking with Jesus is disclosing the thing that you've kept in the darkness, bringing it into the light. But that is the path into the kingdom. But it's difficult to do that, isn't it? Nobody wants to sign up for that kind of pain. But Jesus said it this way. It's the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that leads us into the good life. And it may feel like you're going backwards to enter into the kingdom of God. But that's the part that we have to trust God in, isn't it? 
It may feel like going backwards when we decide to make the right decision somewhere and we can see that bread that we need so badly to consume disappearing in front of us. That's the place that we begin having to trust Jesus with our actual life, right? Because the thing that we want to do is take matters into our own hands and and lie here, lie there, tell an untruth here, tell an untruth there just to make sure that we have enough bread to eat at the end of the day, right? And that is us trading our kingdom inheritance away for a bowl of stew. And Jesus is saying, man, here's the deal. I went into the wilderness. I already had this conversation with Satan. I already paid this price for you. I already had those stones set in front of me. I already had the deceiver tempt me after 40 days of fasting into turning those into loaf of bread so that I could eat. I already passed that test. And guess what? My life is your life. Your life as a Christian is vicariously living the life of Christ. All of his victories are your victories. That's how and why you can trust him when the enemy comes to you with a stone and says, here, I want you to tell one lie. Turn this stone into a loaf of bread so that you and your family can eat. And you say, no, I'm not taking matters into my own hands. I'm telling the truth on this. And we may go hungry tonight, but in the long run, we know that the kingdom of God will prevail in our lives. Oh, man. So there's this beautiful, beautiful story in Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to close with this. I feel like I I, I preached for like, 60 minutes last time I was up here. So I'm trying to make amends. I'm trying to give you time back. (laughs) But there was this one particular woman in Luke 7. And I really hope you know the story. But if you don't, go read it. Because it's such a beautiful story within the gospel. But... Sometimes we've had, we've had chapters in our lives that are, that are just terrible. So, sometimes, um, you know, hopefully I, I'm connecting the, the tax collector and prostitute and temple merchant metaphor for you so that you can, you know, find your life somewhere in there and bring adjustment or ask Jesus to bring adjustment into your life. But sometimes... Um, The metaphor hits a little closer to home than it should. And sometimes we have these chapters of our lives that are just disastrous for one reason or another, where um, not nice church brokenness is being explained, but we've had real abusive and bad brokenness occurring in our lives somewhere where we were either the perpetrator or we were the victim. They're the kind of chapters in our lives where they're so bad, you don't want to get up anywhere and talk about them because they're just too painful. The reality of everybody in this room in here, I promise you, somebody in this room has chapters of their life that look like that. And I just want to say there's no shame. 
There's no shame that 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 stuff has happened. But but I do I do really believe that there's a power to disclosure. There's a power to honesty. There's a power to truth telling that really will set us free. And there's this thing that happens in in Luke chapter seven. And there's a gathering, there's a dinner and Jesus is at this home with all of these religious people and, and his disciples. And this woman comes in and she is, she is beside herself in love with Jesus. I don't know the details of her life, but from the scholars that I've read, the description that's given of her in this chapter points to the reality that this woman was a prostitute. And I, um, I use that term with zero judgment. But I imagine that this woman did not have a beautiful life. I imagine that the level of brokenness in this woman's life was pretty substantial. And it's probably not the kind that she wanted to have broadcast in any church. But this woman somehow was so persuaded and blinded by the love of God in her life that she took a year's worth of wages and went and purchased the costliest oiled or perfumed oil that she could find. And she stumbles into this place where this party is happening and she doesn't even ask permission. And she pours out this costly oil on Jesus and she's wiping his feet. She's wiping his head with her tears and her hair. And it is, it is, it is awkward. It is, it is like ridiculous. She is not um, adhering to any rules of decorum at this point. She is pouring out her life on this man who some some way or another communicated to her that the life she was leading, she no longer had to lead. And the bread that she had been getting, attaining by giving away her body, she no longer had to do that. And she could come into a place of following him, trusting in him, eating the bread that he was serving. And it just, her heart was just, just filled to overflowing with love. And, and what, what do the religious people do when they witness this? They get mad. Isn't it the way it is? People that are filled with their own self-righteousness, people that are filled with their own agenda, they're always gonna get mad when, when there's just like, when the love starts flowing, religious people get upset. You know, one of my favorite times in worship is when I'm with a group of people that stop thinking about all the people that are around them and they get like transfixed with the love of God. And then they just start pouring things out. It's just the best. It's the best feeling. It's the best place. But the thing that I want to really leave you guys with is this. The oil that that woman poured out on that man, she paid for with her own money. But how did she really pay for it? She, 
She took a year's worth of being used by terrible men that were abusing her, who were doing terrible things to her in exchange for money. And sometimes we have these things in life that we don't know what to do with. We can't do anything with them. But according to this scripture, we can be set free from all of that stuff by pouring all of that brokenness from whatever thing that we've been involved with out onto Jesus. Sometimes I don't know what to do, church. Sometimes I, I just... I get caught in my own stupidity in a way that I can't even talk myself out of. And the only thing that I know to do is to bring myself to Jesus and pour out my mistakes, pour out my life, however it looks, pour out my, my, just every part of me, all of my unrighteousness onto Jesus And man, when that thing is done in love, when you're giving your life, however it looks out in love to Jesus, man, he's translating all of that into righteousness. Man, he turns to that woman. He says, your your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. My guess is some of you in here this morning need to be saved from one situation or another. I'll be brutally honest with you. This week, I was in a situation that I needed to be saved from. Like, like stone cold, Jesus, come and get me. Come and get me. And it wasn't something that somebody did to me. It was something that I did to somebody else. Man, that's way harder. When you're the perpetrator and not the victim, it's way harder. It's way harder to hear the truth about yourself, isn't it? Man, my wife called me out so hard. I mean, and, and you know what? When somebody gives you the gift of telling you the truth, you're always tempted to resist it, aren't you? You're always tempted to resist the truth. But you know what Jesus says about that? He says, every time your accuser comes at you with an accusation, agree with them quickly. Whoa, that's so difficult. That's so difficult. And she, my wife wasn't the accuser. She wasn't, she wasn't accusing me of anything. She was just like shining the light. Hey, buddy, look at this. And I was like, Oh, oh my Lord. So, so I've just repented and, and mm. sometimes, sometimes we are held hostage by the truth, by the fear of the truth being discovered. And that is no way for a child of God to live. You would be better off disclosing the truth about your life than living in the fear that someday it will be disclosed for you. I know this is not a very victorious sermon this morning, church. I know that. I realize that. But the work of the Spirit 
is sometimes difficult. And I, I don't want to be a person that is only interested in the messages where it's like, I don't know, everything's rosy and victorious. I just got to believe correctly. You know, sometimes the Lord wants to bring an adjustment to the way I'm thinking and the way I'm acting and the way I'm behaving. Sometimes the Lord wants me to come under the, the robe of humility and admit to myself and the people around me that I can be wrong and that I can act wrongly, but that I don't have to stay there, that I can easily come into the righteousness of God in my life. Why don't we stand up together? Oh, man. Everybody okay? Gears are turning. Joe Mark, do you want to come up here? I think you got something. I can tell. Father God, this kind of stuff is always hard, but I think we all want to live in the, uh, we all want to live in that, in the good space. Amen. We all want to live in freedom. We all want to live in freedom. <laughs> Well, Lord, we do. You know, it's an individual choice, so it's, it's weird for me to get up and pray for everybody. But if you do agree with what I'm saying, you know, put a hand out or put your hand on your heart or just agree within, your, within yourself. But Lord, we do. Um, in any way that we've been harmed, anything that's happened to us that we are holding on to, Anything, uh, in any way that someone has mistreated us, we pour that out on you. The way the young lady from scripture had been abused, she took a year of her abuse and she poured it out on you. And and you said, this is, she's anointing my body. Because he was about to step into a situation where his body was abused. So for every, every punch she felt, every blow that she felt, every physical abuse, every mental sexual abuse, everything that happened to her, she poured it out on Jesus while the Pharisees sat at the table and mocked. But he said, this is the anointing for my body to be buried. She is anointing my body. And I don't understand this. But he said, everywhere the gospel is preached, her gospel will be preached. This story will be told. So, Lord, we do. Anyway, we've been wronged. We pour that out on you. And you know what, Lord? Anyway, we've abused ourselves. Any negative self-talk. We don't belong to ourselves. So we are not allowed to abuse ourselves. We are not allowed to shame ourselves. We are not allowed to look in the mirror and call ourselves out in a negative way. We are only allowed to call ourselves forward. 
We do not have the right to talk down or speak poorly of ourselves to ourselves. So we repent, Lord, any way that we've abused ourselves, any way we talk down to ourselves, any way we've thought less of ourselves, we repent and we pour that out on you. We forgive ourselves. And we thank you for the opportunity to walk in the light. We thank you for the opportunity to walk in freedom. We thank you for the opportunity to die with you and be resurrected new. We thank you for the opportunity to be resurrected every day. In Jesus' name, amen. We do have ministry teams. <laughs> it's hard to just move on from that. You know, that's kind of like heavy. <laughs> that's why Andy brought me up. <laughs> oh, man. It doesn't have to be heavy, though. That's right. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. Thank you, Lord. Hang on. Let's not move on just yet. I feel like the Lord's really doing something. Is this okay? All right. All right. I feel like I just want to give you permission to say good things to yourself. I believe you are a dream of God. You are the manifestation of a dream of God. I want to give you permission to treat yourself good. To not hold yourself <laughs> under the weight of things you've handed over to the Lord. I mean, there's always consequences, right? But the thing that God made you was good. And you don't get righteous by putting yourself down. You don't get righteous by abusing yourself. You don't, you don't get righteous by trying to pay for your own sins in shame. And on the flip side, you also don't make the world right by being angry. I think some of us need to let go of some anger. I know I do. I got really mad at someone the other day because they were angry. I got really mad at someone the other day because they were angry. I mean, really mad. I got literally my, um, <laughs> it was someone I knew and I got really mad and I literally felt my heart racing. And I realized like, how am I going <laughs> to, Right. But I just think there's freedom from the anger culture, freedom from the anger culture. And someone has maybe tricked us sometimes to think that being angry is the way God is righteous. And that by being angry, 
we are part of God's righteousness. But the problem is that anger is always unequal because you can't be angry at every injustice. Now, you have a right if you've been hurt to be angry, just like if you've been wounded, you have a right to have physical pain. But the goal is to heal, not to, right? Not to fester in that pain. The goal is to heal, right? And if you want to be angry at all, at every injustice, if you want to treat injustice equally, you want to be angry at every injustice, then you're going to end up angry at God, the universe, and at yourself. Because you realize that it's impossible to be angry because the world is so riddled with injustice. It doesn't mean that we don't identify injustice and we talk about it and we try and make it right. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I feel like we need to get free from anger because the anger is not helping. Anger destroys the container, right? Anger destroys you. It doesn't fix what's wrong, right? So, Lord Jesus, we do. We just give up any anger that we have. Any anger that we have. People have been mistreated. Some of us have legitimately been mistreated. And we want to make things right. We really, really do. But we don't want to make things right by destroying ourselves in the process, Lord Jesus. We want a long-term vision for justice and righteousness. Not a short term. Not just a bunch of high fives. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> one, one of the things I thought about is Andy was, was speaking and identifying um, some of our issues and problems is that <clears throat> to acknowledge those things is to die. That's that's a death process. You know, I think Andy was sort of feeling like, oh, this is negative, but there's no resurrection if there's no death. And so when you acknowledge your issues, your responsibilities, your sin, whatever category, you give that to the Lord, you may feel terrible, but Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. When you've done that, God obligates to raise you up. And he will. Does that make sense? Yeah, God is obligated. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will, he will exalt you at the right time. And it'll be wonderful. So that was great. Thanks, John Mark. Thanks, Andy. We do have a ministry teams today. Yeah. Very good. If you would like prayer for physical healing, um, if you need prayer of any way, shape, or form or description, if you will come up over here on this side of our assembly area, the, the uh, sanctuary, we will be glad to minister to all of you. Also, do not forget to sign up for the baptisms. It's going to be great. And we have that in the picnic in two weeks. But next week, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Come on, let's just say his name. Jesus. There's something about that name, the old song, kings and kingdoms may all pass away. But there's something about that name, the name of Jesus. Oh, thank you, who? Jesus. Amen. Hey, have a great week. God bless you, folks. Thanks so much for being here. Also, um, I was talking to Karen Woodfin earlier. 
Go out of your way to be a friendly person. Because every week there are people in every congregation who do not feel like they've been befriended. So go befriend whoever that might be. Even if you don't know who it is, take a chance on someone that may feel friended, but do it anyway. Be friendly. Go bless somebody. Be kind to somebody. Okay? And everybody said, okay. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.